Today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This So we are back in the letter of 1 John, very eager to come back to this as we um, are on the second half, the second portion anyway, of chapter 4 here. Um, The other day I was wondering about this, I was like, I wonder if I can, um, it's a short book, so I was like, I wonder if I could just read it while I was on the treadmill, and it didn't even take me 20 minutes. I'd encourage you read through it several times, even like this week. Um, I even had to do the whole thing where I had to like match my bouncing with reading. And I had it just on my phone. Um, It doesn't take very long to read through. It does. I'm finding out that it takes a very long time to preach through because it is so content heavy. There's very little. There's really nothing of like, we went to this place and did this. It is, here are the facts. Here's what I'm getting to. Here's me expounding upon this. Today, we are back in 1 John. Here's a little refresher. 1 John is written by John, the apostle, the revelator, the evangelist, the elder. He had a lot of names. But it is John. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. From he was he was disturbed by the influence deceivers were having in the church. Historically, we call these deceivers that he is referencing here Gnostics. They believed that they had special secret knowledge that other people didn't have. These specific ones, their ideology ranged from either do whatever you want in the flesh because your body doesn't matter. Or do nothing that would even give you any kind of enjoyment because, once again, your body doesn't matter. Um, This is incorrect. What you do in the body does matter. They would take this so far to say that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh. That Christ was a spirit that came upon the man, Jesus. And that is why he focuses so much on who the God, the Son, truly is. Jesus Christ. You can't separate them. It is God becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. These these deceivers, what they truly are, are thieves. Jesus gives a parable about an enemy who comes in the middle of the night and plants weeds amongst the good crop. I always love that parable because I'm like, that is kind of just a weirdly mean thing to do, just planting weeds in somebody's crop. You know what weeds do? They take away the nutrients and the soil and the water and the light from the good crop. They are thieves. These false teachers, these false prophets, they are thieves. They try, to steal from, they try to steal from the people of God. They try to steal their joy. They try to steal their freedom. Worst of all, and most, most central, is they try to steal their affection away from Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, and onto them. Peter will say they will try to make merchandise of you. 
Unfortunately, we've seen that in many churches where the pastor is just really using the congregation to live the kind of lifestyle he wants to live. He's made merchandise of them. Jesus warned us of these things, and now it is happening in John's day, and John is pushing back against this in his letter of 1 John. In his letter of 1 John, really he gives three proofs of genuine Christianity, genuine Christians and genuine teachers and preachers. David Gusset calls it a three-legged stool. A three-legged stool, because if you take away one leg from a three-legged stool, you tip over. You can't really balance on it very well. The three legs are doctrine, righteousness, and love. Doctrine, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? You'll find most times when you have a false teacher, they will attack the deity or the person of Jesus Christ. They were doing both. Does this person believe the correct things about God, specifically God the Son? There was a false teacher in John's day. His name was Centurus. Centurus taught that Jesus Christ was not immaculately, immaculately conceived. What that means is not born of a virgin. He, was, he taught that Jesus Christ was a person like anybody else. He just was really morally good. And the Christ consciousness came upon him during his baptism. This is damnable false teaching that would send somebody to hell if they really believed it. Because it's a different gospel. So the story goes from Epibius's ecclesiastical history that Arrhenius had mentioned that there was a time where John was in this public bathhouse where people go to wash up and everything. And Centurus came in and John got up and left right away because he would not share even the same water with such an enemy of the truth. Many people believe that it was Centurus that John was really targeting with his letter here because Centurus does not believe the things that you need to believe about Jesus Christ. The second leg is that of righteousness. Righteousness. Sometimes we focus so much on grace in church that we pervert it. God's grace is never a license for sin. We never get to be like, yeah, I can do this because God's going to forgive me. No, I must live in righteousness because God has forgiven me. I don't need to earn his love. I have his love and I don't take it for granted because I know that I am the one in debt. Because of this, sometimes, and because of so much of our Christianity is so much behind the scenes, we give a lot of space for immoral living. Oh, who am I to judge? We inspect fruit. And as John says in this letter right here, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. This is a fact. A person can say that they have been born again. They can say that they said a prayer one time, but if they are not growing in righteousness, their testimony is subject, is suspect. It's not that their righteous deeds have saved them, but the right reaction to the saving love of God is that they live a life geared towards him. It's not perfection, but it is direction. And a person should be growing in righteousness. We're the first ones to judge ourselves. Am I growing in righteousness? Am I going to be more like Jesus Christ in 2023 than I was in 2022? We should always be looking for this. Let no one deceives you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And then from both of those, we get the third leg, and it is love. The third leg is love. And not just any love, but love for brothers and sisters in the Lord. A Christian who hates other Christians is a contradiction and needs to go before the throne of grace. A person can have perfect doctrine and outwardly live very righteously, but without love, they have nothing. 
1 John is a book that is often taken out of context. Many of the verses in 1 John are used on their own to mean something completely different from what the apostle was saying. 1 John is a book, a letter often taken out of context. Probably one of the best examples of taking anything out of context is found in 1 John. I mentioned John's three-legged stool. Out of this whole series, I've been building this for you. As I've been going verse by verse, so you know I'm not playing fast and loose with the text. John is building this three-legged stool, and every leg is essential. None of them are optional. However, even today, people will cherry-pick what they like from 1 John and ignore the rest. People have used verses, this is crazy, people have used the verses about righteousness to make a doctrine about Christian perfectionism, as in if you commit sin or you have sin, you're not a Christian. That's the Christian perfectionist doctrine. It's a false doctrine. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. John was making that point in 1 John, but people will cherry-pick a verse out to try to make a doctrine of Christian perfectionism. Probably the most out-of-context verse you will find in 1 John is the one that Becca read today, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. They'll say things like this, my theology is love people, or God is love is perfect doctrine. That is true if you understand it in context. If we take it out of context to try to make it mean anything we want, it's one of the reasons I preach and I teach verse by verse. That makes, um, I preach verse by verse because trying to take scripture out of context, it is somewhat difficult to do when you preach verse by verse. Preaching a topical sermon, is very, it's very easy to take things out of context. You just type in Bible Gateway, the thing you want, you accept the ones you like, you ignore the ones you don't. I'm going to preach on verse 8, and the last part of verse 8 is one of the most out-of-context verses people will quote. Definitions matter. During Christmas, I preached from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, that tells us that Christ's government will be upheld with justice and righteousness. Those two terms right there, those words, justice and righteousness, just in the English language, have been defined, redefined under attack just in the last couple of years. How just that one word, justice? You find out, I mean, if you, if you read magazines, articles, that what I mean by justice is not what other people mean by justice. Some people would see any kind of discomfort, inequity as, as, as injustice. So that's not necessarily injustice. How does God define justice? How does God define righteousness? And more than that, people want their own definition of what love is so that when they read God is love, they can then make God into their own image of what they believe love is to be. And so many people, their idea of love is more harsh than other people's idea of hate. It is from tainted love that we get the atrocities of World War II. You will find, if you read the writing of any tyrant, they'll talk a lot about love. But they do not understand what love is. God is the one who gets to define these terms. God loves you. When I say that, how does that make you feel? I fear mostly we take it for granted. Like, God loves me and the sky is blue. Both are true. I think, unfortunately, for, for a lot, most of them are meaningless. Both of those are meaningless in your day-to-day life. But if we dwell on that one fact, God loves me. If we could truly understand it, we couldn't take it for even a millisecond without 
without our body just exploding because it's so fantastic. It's so amazing. It's so unlikely. We take it for granted because we think God owes us love. No, he loves us because of who he is. God loves you. He doesn't have to. He chooses to love you. It is the most powerful and unlikeliest of statements when you truly think about it. Let me ask you, today, when you drank your glass of water, did you love the protozoa floating in your glass? You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? You're constantly eating and drinking other organisms. I'm guessing you don't even know they exist. And if you do know they exist, you don't care. If we are to make a comparison as far as scale goes, you are closer in size to a protozoa than you are to God. He measures the cosmos in relationship to his hand. Isaiah. When I tell you God loves you, that's from the book of Isaiah. I wasn't telling you anything special back there, Isaiah. He measures the cosmos in relationship to his hand. When I tell you God loves you, pause, take note, Selah. He loves you. His love cannot be taken out of context. There's a context to his love. His love actually means something. He's just not sitting around going, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, his love is action. His love is not passive. It's not up for interpretation. It gives life, it changes life, and it perfects. And it's not at odds with his other attributes. Sometimes we think God's love won over his justice and his mercy. But the psalmist would say, that mercy and truth have kissed one another. God is justice and he judges in love. God is truth. And the truth can only, ultimate truth can only be found in God's love. And God's love can only be found in God's truth. So for us, verses 7 through 12, this is for us. Since God has loved us, we should love. We should love one, naturally. Two, powerfully. And third, perfectly. We should love naturally. Verse 7, you know, normally I will read commentaries, I'll read other people's, then I'll digest it, I'll do further research, and then I present to you, I'm going to just quote the commentary I read on verse 7 right here. From David Gusick. The ancient Greek sentence begins in a striking way. Those who are loved, let us love. We are not commanded to love one another to earn or become worthy of God's love. We love one another because we are loved by God and have received that love and live in light of it. This is about the new nature God has given you. It is natural for you to love one another. There is often a debate when it comes to behavior. Is it more nature or nurture? Well, if you are born again of God... You have a new nature, and you are being nurtured by the Holy Spirit himself. So you who are loved, let us love. Christ gave a parable in Matthew 18 about this unmerciful servant. He had owed his master a price he couldn't repay, and his master had every right to throw him into jail and throw away the key. But his master decided to forgive him his debt. This obviously didn't mean much to that servant because he goes about and he finds, he finds his fellow servant who owes, his mo- owes, him, owes him money. 
And instead of forgiving this man of the very small amount of money he owes him, he throws him into jail. And when the man, the first man's master finds out, he is furious with him. How could he not, how could he not forgive when he's been forgiven so much more? When the king finds out his anger is terrible, the man had been forgiven so much, how could he not forgive so little? Ezekiel 36, 26 tells us about our new heart. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you the heart of flesh. When the Lord saved you, it was not a business transaction or a religious ceremony. It was a heart transplant. It was life from death, darkness to life. Love each other because that is what you have now been made to do. It is what the new heart beats to do. Want to be miserable? Act in the flesh instead of the spirit. Carry resentment for other believers. You will be miserable. You know, God, God was really testing me in this this last week about the fruit of the spirit about living, deciding to act in the fruit of the Spirit, my new nature rather than my old nature. Because when the second pipe burst, I wanted to be in the flesh. Actually, when the first pipe broke, I wanted to be in the flesh. I called Josh, and I could barely form sentences. I was like, Josh, water's going everywhere. The thing that shuts off the water. I couldn't remember the word valve. And then I, I took myself a moment, and I was like, where is the shut-off valve? And he directed me how to shut off the valve. And as I'm like squeegeeing the water and everything, I'm telling myself, I'm repeating, this is why you need to, this is why you need to hide God's word in your heart. Because in that moment, I know the fruit of the Spirit. I know who I've been created to be. And losing my mind in a fit of rage is not who I was made to be. But the God, the Holy Spirit has put in me love, joy, peace, patience, guidance, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then I had the change in perspective that I don't have to do this. I get to serve my congregation by mopping up this water. Amen. Then I called two other servants to come and do the same. <laughs> <laughs> Love's origin. We are told the origin of love in these verses right here. In verse 8, anyone who, does not lo- anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love's origin is from God. It should go back to God. If we know God, we love. It's as simple as that. It's the first virtue mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. It is the defining characteristic of believers. The last three words of verse 8 have been some of the most twisted, some of the most taken out of context to justify sin and everything under the face of the sun that breaks the very heart of God. And the three words are, God is love. It's true. Oh, my word, is it true? If you understood it, I don't think you'd survive it. But so many people, instead of seeing this in context of what, what John will be saying here, will twist it to say, well, God is love, therefore whatever sin that breaks God's heart is not only permissible, but blessed. First John 2.5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. What do they do? They keep his word. By this we may know we are in him. You cannot separate the love of God from his word or from his righteousness. 
God is love, but he is the one who defines what love is. We have that word, many of you already know it, in the Greek, agape. The highest form of the word love that the Greeks had, that they sparingly used, is used flagrantly in the New Testament that doesn't cover what the love of God is. Not even close. From there, we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We read it at weddings. But love is patient, love is kind. It does not boast, it does not keep a record of wrongs. It never ends. Everything you will read about in your Bible will amount to those three words, God is love. But oftentimes when we read our scripture, we'll say, well, how can a loving God, you know, fill in the blank, send somebody to hell, allow sickness and suffering? How can a loving God do these? And when I'm tempted to say these things, I have to cut in with the voice of reason, the voice from the scripture, and it's this. Do what? Something I wouldn't do? Something you wouldn't do? Here's our question. Is your love perfect? Is your love not tainted by this world, by the way you grew up, by the examples that you have? Is your love correct? Maybe you think, well, I just feel what love is, and that is what love is, and that is what God is. Well, my friend, your heart is deceitful among all things. So if you are judging God's love by your love, then you have a skewed view of God. God is love, and that love is remaking you to understand who he truly is by truly understanding what his love is. So love naturally, because that's the way that God has made you. You who are loved, love. Second, love powerfully, as God loved you powerfully. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we may live through him And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What does love look like? God's love is not a hallmark channel during Christmas kind of love. It is not sappy, it's not sentimental, it is powerful. So too should our love for one another be powerful. We see movies... Shows, songs about love all the time. And many people have their definitions of love. And so many times they are not only wrong, but they're gross. Exhibit A, The Bachelor. I'll never, if I live to be a million, I'll never understand The Bachelor. That's not what love looks like. If we want to know what love looks like, how powerful God's love is, here's just one of many examples in the scripture. Abraham and Isaac. What happened? God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, the child of promise, the promised child that God had promised him, to take him up to a hill and to sacrifice him. Abraham doesn't even question God. He takes his son, his only son, his only legitimate son, whom he loved, the child of promise, up to the hill, believing that God would resurrect him. He takes him up, and while they are walking up the hill, and so many of these details get lost in the retelling. If you watch like a a Bible movie, a lot of these details get lost. Isaac asks his father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham tells him this, Yahweh Yaira. Those would have been the words he spoke to his son. It means God will provide. We know it as Jehovah Jaira, my provider. It's where that compound word comes from. Not from 
When we had too much month and not enough paycheck and God provides or, you know, the, the camel broke down, say so they got a new camel or whatever. No, they're going up to the hill and God has told him to take his son and put him to death on the hill. And when his son asks him, where's the sacrifice? He tells him God will provide. He takes, he takes Isaac up. He has him lay down on the altar. He takes his knife. And before he can bring it down, God tells him to stop because now he knows that he fears the Lord. And generation after generation after generation after generation, God then takes his son, his only son, who he is well pleased in that he loves. And he takes him up to a hill. And the knife is not stayed. But the thing that he told Abraham that I won't have you do this, he does. He does. You know, the, the, the scriptures tell us that the soul that sins must die, should die, But even if you know nothing about the Bible, just nothing, you know that when someone does something wrong, they deserve to be punished. We we know that intrinsically. Now, we have a different view of morality and things like that, what sins deserve death and all that. But the word tells us that that the soul that sins should die. Isaac was not a perfect person. Abraham was not a perfect person. They deserve to die. But through the lineage of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of David of Mary and Joseph comes Jesus Christ who pays the penalty for their sins. This is what love looks like. God's love is powerful. So too should our love for each other be powerful, sacrificial, bearing one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. His love motivates, originates, and informs your love. In general, we focus way too much on our love for God. That's nothing to boast about because we would not love him if he did not love us first. His love originates, motivates, and informs our love. Verse 10 says it all. I don't try to love you because of the well of love I have inside of me. I stand under the waterfall of grace and God gives me, the Holy Spirit gives me love for you. Since last week is Christmas, was Christmas, I have a timely illustration. Many of you perhaps had your Christmas dinner, and I don't know about you, I love mashed potatoes, and I love turkey, turkey dressing. And you know what I hate is that when I, the, the bowl is being passed around, and by the time it's my turn, there's no potatoes left. You know, the question is, who ate all the potatoes? <laughs> we don't have any more potatoes. In verse 10, there's an interesting word here, propitiation. Many of your translations will say atoning sacrifice. Both words, in my opinion, are not the best way of uh, translating this. Atoning sacrifice doesn't quite do it, does not quite explain exactly what that word means. Propitiation is fine, except, although it is a word in English, I don't know if anybody used the word propitiation this last week. I know I didn't. You know, English is a wonderful language, isn't it? We have a whole host of words that we just don't use anymore. One of the classes um, I I played for you in Middle English, not even Old English, the Lord's Prayer, and I asked the question, what language is this? I got German, Hebrew, Greek, Swahili. It's like, it's our language. So propitiation, not so much because we don't use it so much anymore. What it means, what this word means, is that it's satisfied the wrath of God. 
When Jesus Christ, before he died on, his, on the cross, went to a garden and he prayed to the Lord, he prayed to his Father three times for this cup to pass from me. This cup, the cup of Elijah, prophesied in Malachi, still to this day used in observant Jews' Seder meals, was the God's wrath for all of the sinful world. The cup that we filled with the sins that we've committed, we earned our place in hell. But Christ drank this cup and he drank all of it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Before Jesus went to the cross, he was praying in the garden for that cup to pass from him. The cup did not pass from him. He drank it, and he drank it all. Sorry, Jesus ate all the potatoes. There's none left for you. There's no wrath left over for you. Next week, this informs now. This goes into next week, where we talk about one of the verses that gets misquoted a lot, which is mainly the misquotation is, perfect love drives out all fear. The proper quotation is, perfect love drives out fear. And it's a certain kind of fear. It's a fear of judgment. And if you've been perfected in his love, this is not a fear that you should have because Jesus ate all the potatoes already. There's none left over for you. So love naturally. Love because you've been loved. Love because he's put a new spirit in your heart. Love each other. That is what you were naturally made to do. Second, love powerfully. Love sacrificially. We're told to bear one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of God, law of Christ. Love perfectly. I purposely use the word perfectly. One, it's in the scripture in verse 12. Two, I knew it would stir in you a certain attitude of, I can't love perfectly. And you're right, but you're commanded to. Love perfectly. God's love is perfected in you. How did Jesus love us? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together, to start doing the right thing, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God so loved us, we should love one another the same way, forgiving each other, providing for one another, bearing one another's burdens, and this way fulfill the law of Christ. I said before, you can't do this. On your own. You can't do this in the flesh. I think the story that really just cements this home for me is the story of Corey Ten Boone. I've played the video before, so I'm not going to play it today. Corey Ten Boone, as far as like, I don't know how righteous you think you are or moral you think you are, I think Corey Ten Boone has you beat. Her and her family hid Jews during the Holocaust. It's kind of hard to beat that, right? <laughs> Someone's like, oh, yeah, I did. No, you didn't. Um, they then were found out, went to a concentration camp. Many of them died. She didn't die. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And she was going to church to church to give her testimony. And one time when she was over in Germany, she finishes, and this German man comes over to her. And he says, Fräulein Boone, do you recognize me? I was one of the guards in the concentration camp you were in. She did recognize him. He was brutal. He was not kind. And he told her, the most amazing thing happened. The Lord has saved me. And now I go to those that I have hurt, my victims, and I'm going to ask you, will you forgive me? And he held out his hand. 
She said in that moment, with all of her soul, with all of her soul, she did not want to. She wanted to slap away his hand. It was in that moment that God told her, though, if you don't forgive him, I haven't forgiven you. She told God, I, I can't. God knew she couldn't. That is why we're told in Philippians that I can do all things through him, he who gives me strength. We're not talking about going from a couch to 5K. We're talking about when somebody's deeply hurt us to be able to forgive, when we go under persecution, when we lose our jobs for standing for righteousness. We can do all things through he who gives us strength. And she felt the love of God be, be spread anew in her heart. And she took his hand and she embraced him as her brother in Christ. Loving each other really isn't work. What I mean is that it's something that comes with the new nature, that naturally and powerfully from the new nature we can love. As verse 11 says, we should because he loved us. It is the right response for the one who has felt the love of God. We're told in verse 12, no one has seen God. No one has seen God. That's an interesting statement. It's a true statement, but let me explain it. Maybe we look at the Old Testament and we see uh, these instances in which God appeared to people. Moses saw his back. Isaiah saw him seated, uh, high and lifted up. I could go on. We see these. We call these in the um, theological community as theophanies, as in the appearance of God in the Old Testament. But this isn't God in his full appearance. God in his full appearance would roast anybody who looked at him. Now God tempers his glory down, so no one has fully seen the full appearing of God the Father. Jesus Christ told us that God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. It's one of the reasons we don't have idols, images of God the Father, because we don't need them. He is spirit. He is here with us right now. He truly is. When I speak to God, I am speaking to God. I am not speaking to an idol who then can go communicate it to God later on. I am speaking directly to God. I mentioned Moses and Isaiah specifically about seeing God because Isaiah, because Moses saw God's back and Isaiah saw him seated. However, Jesus says in John 4 that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. What they were seeing was God's glory being tampered down for them to be able to understand it. See, this is what makes Christmas so special, the invisible God becoming physical, wreathed in flesh the Godhead sees, hail incarnate deity. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. A spirit doesn't have a back, it doesn't have legs to sit. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John right here in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. This is a direct attack on those who had said, no, I had a vision of God the Father telling me that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was a man who then had the Christ consciousness put on him. He, he is attacking their, their assertion that they've seen God the Father. No, you didn't. I think sometimes we're hesitant to do that. We think maybe it's unloving, which once again, we're taken out of context. If it's unloving to call out heretics, Okay, then you have to say the Holy Spirit's unloving because the Holy Spirit wrote the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is calling out heretics. This book is calling out heretics. The one who just read, wrote, God is love, is calling out heretics. And that is what he is doing right here. As he's saying that no one has seen God. I would say be, be extremely skeptical of those who seen, say that they've seen God the Father. 
Honestly, this happens a lot with people who say that they've made a visit to heaven. It's one of the reasons I discount the vast majority of those. Because no one has seen God. So nobody has seen God, but he says, in one sense, you have seen God. Because you see God when you love one another. God's love is perfected when you love one another. It's the perf- it is the, it is the tra- trajectory of God's love. The end of verse 12 is going, is going to be the context of another verse later on that is often taken out of context as well. The perfected love of God. God's love acts. It produces, and in God's love, it starts with the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have perfect unity and perfect love between them. From this love, he created the world and created every creature on the world, and he made man in his own image. Man falls, and the Father, because he so loved the world, sends the Son. The Son gives his life on the cross, absorbing all of the Father's wrath, so that now believers are accepted into the family of God, and now with the love that they now have received from God, they love one another, and it closes the circle, because that love now goes back to God in praise, worship, and glory. Can I explain that again? Maybe that's a little bit much, but... Love starts with the Godhead eternally before all things were made. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit love each other. They are one in essence, three in person. Because God loves, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit love, they create the world and everything on it out of love. They create man in their own image out of love. Man falls by his own actions. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They are now fallen. They deserve hell because they have sinned against God Almighty. But because God loves them, specifically God the Father, so loved the world, he gives his son of love to this world to die on a cross so that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So it is from the love of the Father to the love of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, love, that we are now made anew in Jesus Christ. And we have a new spirit And we have a new heart. And as we then love each other, God's love goes forth to each other. And it all wells up to praise and thanksgiving back to God. Therefore, completing the circle of love. And God's love is now perfected. In verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is why This is why attendance in church, meeting with other believers, is so important. We are perfecting the love of God. I hope you understand what I mean here. I'm not saying God's love is deficient in any way, shape, or form. But it's the trajectory of love that keeps going on. And God is blessed, glorified. His desire is met when we come together and we love each other with a powerful, natural, and perfected love. Worship team, would you come up? I thought for a brief moment of doing a New Year's sermon in which I talked about your projections for the new year and all that. Now where the Holy Spirit wanted me to go. Went back to John. And as I was doing this, you know something? Our first New Year's resolution or every day resolution, February, March, April, May, we can go on, to love God and to love each other better. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. Maybe there's somebody you're holding unforgiveness towards. God will give you the power to love them and to forgive them. 
Maybe today you're thinking the bitterness has been holding on for way too long. You're like, I don't, I can't do that. You can't. I'm not saying you can. I'm saying the Holy Spirit will give you supernatural power to do so. And it may take, it may take a while. It may take continually going to the throne of grace with confidence, receiving mercy and grace in our time of need. But we have been made, remade in Christ to love each other naturally, powerfully, and then in our love, the love of God is perfected. Would you please join us as we finish in our last song here? We'll then end in our benediction.